welcome to another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. Today, we're going through with another author in the new anthology called Survivors, The Forgotten Victims of Murder and Suspicious Deaths. Um, this book, I can't explain the importance from my end. I, I, I think this is just a really important read for the general public as well as anyone who's experienced the tragedy of losing a loved one to a violent death. Um, and the survivors of victims and, and murder are often victimized twice. They're first, they've lost their loved one, and then subsequently, the system that they rely on for justice isn't always fair. And then in pursuit of police transparency and the search for justice, um, Dennis Griffin takes us inside the world of real crime cases to expose the shocking truth behind the alarming number of unsolved murders and suspicious deaths classified on uh, wrongly in a lot of cases as accidental, self-inflicted or natural. And some have just, you know, really had very little or no investigation. So what happens is it leaves this field of surviving victims in limbo. They're they're fighting for justice, they're looking for clues, they're not getting information for, you know, whatever reasons those might be, and it, it just is heartbreaking. Some of these stories that you'll read, there's actually 23 authors in this book um, who have taken the time and written their stories about their loved one and what's been going on in their cases. So today's guest is Karen Bowden. Karen's sister, Kathy Glotty, was brutally murdered in 1971 at the age of 13. Karen, why don't you briefly tell us a little bit about yourself and then go into Kathy's case? Okay, um... Well, now at this point in my life, uh, a lot of the work that I do is um, speaking engagements, and I speak to law enforcement, um, homicide units, um, and then criminal justice students at universities, and I present what my family and I went through um, since Kathy was murdered. Uh, Her case is still unsolved this November. It'll be 48 years that uh, it's been unsolved. And I give them a very enlightening um, aspect of what it's like uh, to go through with that and not have a case solved. Um, Some of the um, pros about it as far as with law enforcement and some of the uh, negatives that we've had to deal with uh, with law enforcement Um, and people not coming forward with information, just all the frustration over all of these years. Um, And, uh, you know, as, as you know, I've written a couple of books about Kathy also um, and uh, present uh, information that I've found out, uh, especially in the sequel, um, A Child is Missing, Searching for Justice. It took me six years to write that book. Um, I interviewed over 50 individuals um, and uh, six years of research and writing um, before it was finished. And 
um, personally found out a lot of things that I didn't know, um, which helped to rest um, my mind in some areas that I was questioning. Um, so I um, think that um, what I do now is I try, that's the justice that I try to give Kathy, even though it's never been to the court and someone's been ar- arrested. Um, you know, she was only 13 years old, and it, it was a brutal murder. She she was raped, they think, possibly multiple times. Um, she was beaten badly, um, and she was uh, strangled, which was uh, what finally killed her, was a strangulation. And then when they dumped her in the woods three miles from our home, um, they ran over her um, multiple times to make sure that she was dead and uh, was never going to be able to tell who had, had done that to her. Um, she was left naked in the woods, um, except for her knee-high socks, which were pulled down but not taken off, um, but she had no other clothing on. Um, it was just horrible, and it was three miles from our home and in a small um, area called Franklin, New Hampshire, which it was just everybody knew everybody, and you know, it was the type of area that um, if you did something wrong in school, your parents knew about it before you got home. Um, so it, it was a very close-knit uh, community, and it changed that community forever. And, and um, it still has, because I've talked to people uh, back there that when I've done a book signing, and um, they still have never gotten over it. So... Um, yeah, it affects people, not just the family, but a community for a very long time. I just can't imagine. And it just what you've just said speaks to the ripple effect that a tragedy like this has. It's not it's not just the close family members that suffer or grieve. It it goes through a whole community and even further in, in some cases. How how on earth did your family get through this horrific time? Well, it was uh, very difficult. I, you know, I, uh, my parents um, never recovered. Uh, They, uh, you know, if if there is any problems in the family um, at all, as far as even with alcohol or um, prescription drugs or, um, you know, relationships within the family, this puts such a strain on the family that many times, um, they never recover. You know, my parents eventually uh, divorced, and um, even though I really believe that they loved each other, um, they just could not deal uh, with the situation and, and the connections um, that their relationship uh, had. And uh, so, you know, my dad later on uh, died of cancer, and the last thing he wanted to know was who had done this to Kathy, that's all he thought about. And then um, I think it's about six years later, my mom committed suicide. And uh, so um, the effects that it has uh, on a family is can just be devastating. And I was only just barely 15 years old. So, um, you know, left with no direction. And, and um, I'm surprised that the rest of us in our family, my brothers and sisters um, survived ourselves. Um, I had a sister that was home with me 
at the time the rest had already moved on, were married, one was in the military. Um, but my sister Janet and I were at home and had to continue dealing with uh, law enforcement and to watch our parents um, as they were. And, um, you know, I'm really, I'm surprised <laughs> that we made it out. Um, and, um, but I, I think finding some kind of purpose in life eventually uh, really does help um, give you some kind of direction. And I, I also have a great faith. And uh, my faith has really helped me over the years. So, Absolutely. And it's just, you know, what you've said speaks to the fact that it, it can devastate a family. It, it, it can be to the point where people just don't recover from something like this. And it affects that person. The trauma of it all affects you physically on down the road. We don't often think mm-hmm. of that. We think, you know, mentally the grieving process and, and all that you go through, but we don't often think about the physical aspects of, of what a trauma like this can do. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your parents. And I didn't know that, um, I didn't know that they had divorced. Um, and that's very sad to hear. Um, yeah. So you tell know, me, go ahead. They um, they divorced and then they remarried, um, and then they separated and they stayed separated after that. So, I mean, they tried mm. to remarry uh, years down the road, but it it just still didn't work. Oh, that's sad. That's very sad to hear. Yeah. So. Tell me what got you involved in this project. Um, you know, you you mentioned earlier that you've written two books, A Child is Missing, A True Story, and the sequel, A Child is Missing, Searching for Justice. So what what did you find in this project with survivors that spoke to you and, you know, made you want to be a part of it? Well, I've I've been involved in a couple other projects, you know, Surviving Loss by Homicide and Project Co-Case. And when Denny approached me about being in um, this book about survivors, um, I thought it was very important. Um, You know, growing up, I I didn't have um, counseling. I, I didn't have a victim's advocate. I didn't really have things to read that I could relate to as far as, you know, what others were going through uh, during a a situation like this and how traumatic it was and what was normal and what was abnormal. Um, So these types of books, and especially with the survivors, um, people are very honest about what they went through and um, physically, mentally, and every story is different. Uh, you'll read that every single one um, has has a very unique um, way of of telling you what they've been through, and I think that um, it's important to have something out like like this uh, for others who currently or in the future will go through the same types of situations. Um, something that they can relate to and, and shake their head, yes, as they're reading and saying, you know, that's exactly what I'm going through right now. That's exactly what I'm feeling physically, 
I'm struggling with this. Uh, it's important to understand that you're not alone. I felt very alone for decades um, dealing with uh, Kathy's murder and the fact that I was told not to talk to anyone about it. And so for years, um, just kept most of it inside, um, not sharing um, information with anyone. And it really wasn't until, you know, 2006, I started to um, come out of that shell and realize that talking about this uh, was important and allowing others to talk about it is especially important. Um, they need to be able to talk about it and have others understand that this is part of uh, the healing process. Oh, absolutely. And I think what you just said, it's so important that people know that they're not alone in this. And one of the previous podcasts that we did um, with two other women who contributed to this book who also have organizations which really advocate for people in this situation. I call them the surviving victims because you definitely are uh, a victim just as much as your loved one is. And there's a lot of processes that, that people have to go through that they really don't even know about. And, I think this is what's been so helpful from my perspective is that even through this book, you've created a network of people and organizations that can actually reach out beyond what's in the book, that actually reach out to people in the same situation and help guide them so that someone else's journey through this isn't quite as traumatic, I guess, and, and could be made a little bit easier. Right. I, I do believe that these types of books are important for law enforcement to read. I think it should be part of their curriculum and also in um, universities for criminal justice students, for them to read these types of things uh, that are written by victims, um, their true stories and true feelings, whether they agree with the, uh, the outcome or the, the way that a person feels or doesn't feel, but just to understand uh, the circumference of um, emotions uh, that happen when uh, a situation um, is like this. And um, especially when it's un it goes unsolved for so many years and, and you're waiting. I know we waited day after day after day. It was a day-by-day day thing for, for decades, actually. And then so much time would go by and we wouldn't hear it about, you know, any information whatsoever and just feel, um, you know, that, that there's not any hope. And, and so... For law enforcement and criminal justice students and even victims advocates uh, to read these stories so they have a little bit better insight of what some of these people are dealing with. You know, I, over the years, even if there was an arrest, um, then the family has to go through the trial. And it's just like you're victimized over and over again. And you go through the trial and maybe the person's put in prison. And then mm -hmm. after so many years, you know, they're fighting for appeals and uh, they want an early release and the family has to go in and fight for them to stay in prison. And it, it's just, it seems to be never ending. 
Um, and I think to look at that as um, a possibility uh, to understand that it's something that we just don't put in a box and seal it and then put it away and we're done with it, that never happens. So justice justice is not the end all to be all because in order to have justice, you have to go through this whole continuing process that you just described. Even, even when there is an arrest, even when there is someone held accountable for this, it's still such an ongoing process for families that we, you know, you don't see that part on TV. You don't see it explained in the movies. There is no tied up at the end bow to end it all. Right. It doesn't work that way. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of a very sad statement because we, we want to believe that and we're kind of led to believe that that's what's going to happen. Were there ever any suspects in Kathy's case? Yeah, there were, there were a number of suspects in, uh, in her case. And, you know, uh, there was a prime suspect and there's a prime suspect that's still um, out there and living today. Um, and, um, his name is Kenneth Bonifant, and he's been, uh, you know, verbally uh, has been said that he is the last living prime suspect that's out there. Um, and there's a, a lot of information um, that I found out in that doing the research in the uh, sequel um, about testimony that was given to law enforcement that was uh, pretty damaging and um and really surprised me that uh, an arrest was never made with him. As they really tried in 1983, and it ended up not working out because the attorney general wanted, you know, wanted it to be a slam dunk case, and it wasn't. And so he told them that they needed to um, do a further investigation and find something that was so secure that um, that for sure he would be put in prison. And so nothing happened in 1983. And I I really think in 1983, that was the best time for something to happen. And they lost that opportunity at that time. I mean, it was uh, reactivated in 83 and then reactivated in 2006. Um, and then her remains were exhumed. They were hoping to get DNA when another individual from Florida, Edward Ducat, turned himself in and said he was involved in Kathy's murder and gave some testimony that uh, some of it fit and others, other things that he said um, didn't quite um, fit. Um, it was a little bit all over the place. Um, but he never said he actually killed her. He said he was involved in it. Um, and I believe that could be the, poss- the possibility that's the reason why they never made an arrest with him. Um, and later on, he ended up passing away. Um, I actually had agreed with law enforcement to wear a wire and go down and talk to him because supposedly he had changed his ways and had a faith that I understood and and that maybe I could talk to him Um and um, but before I could get there, we had everything all set up, uh, plane tickets, and coordinated with Florida police. And before I could get there, he Edward Ducat had passed away. And so 
um, I, I couldn't do that um, and to see if I could get any other information or other individuals that he was involved with. Um, I believe that there was more than one person maybe involved. Um, but yeah, so um, as far as I know and as far as law enforcement has told us, um, the last living suspect is Kenneth Bonifant. And um, um, once he passes away, uh, I don't, I don't expect there'll be a deathbed confession because he's very egotistical person. Um, I'm still denies it to this day, but I'm hoping that, um, you know, he's threatened people um, in the past and I'm hoping that people that have been afraid of him in the past, uh, once he is gone, um, possibly will come forward with um, enough information that we can, say that he was the one that killed her and, and then, you know, get this off the book. Um, that's what I'm hoping for is at this point. Mm, that would be great. And, and was your relationship with the law enforcement pretty good through all of this? You know, I was so young in the beginning. Um, uh, I think for decades I didn't really look at it one way or another. Um, I do think in 1983, we, we had uh, suspected that there might have been some corruption in local law enforcement. You know, it was a small community, um, but we, we felt that something wasn't right. And then in um, 2006, uh, when Kathy's remains were going to be exhumed, um, we confronted um, the homicide unit at that point about any kind of corruption in 1971. And, and they um, did tell us that there was an individual on the local law enforcement um, and that was friends with Kenneth Bonifant that was leaking information to him. And I got this verified by another man that uh, worked um, his worked the case in 71 and in 83 um, and uh, Roland Lamy and he verified too that there was uh, someone on uh, local law enforcement that was leaking information and his last name is Magoon and he was giving information to Ken Bonifant um, about things that were happening uh, in the case um, so he knew uh, he knew that they were coming to his house to bring him down to talk to him at, ahead of time. And there is um, uh, valid information of people that were at his house at that time that phone call came in and he went down to his basement and was taking stuff out of his basement and bringing it out of uh, the bulkhead of his home and putting it into a container, um, a barrel um, that he had set on fire. Um, and some of the um, material that was taken out uh, possibly could have had Kathy's fingerprints on it. Um, and so he knew this ahead of time and then went upstairs and looked out the window and said, oh, there's somebody watching me. And then the people came to his door and he went down and gave, gave a testimony of, of where he was. Um, and there was a point where he had broken down 
and um, they felt that they were making progress with him. And as far as what I've been told by law enforcement, that he was bawling like a baby. And someone walked in and interrupted um, the investigation and interrogation. And um, at that point, he stopped talking and then got a lawyer and um, wouldn't talk to him after that. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think later on in life, um, yeah, there was there were some things that were suspicious about law mm-hmm. enforcement. Now, for me, <clears throat> it didn't change me in the way that I feel that all law enforcement are crooked, um, that there's not any good out there as far as law enforcement goes. Um, I definitely feel the opposite. I feel most of the time and high percentage of the time, the people that are working on these cases are, um, are good men and women that really want to solve these homicides. Um, and what they see and hear and smell, um, I wouldn't want their job for anything in the world. I don't think they get paid a nearly enough money to do this type of uh, job. Um, oh, I, yeah, I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly agree with that statement. And, yes, we're, we're very pro-law enforcement. <laughs> um, yeah. I'd like to take the, the last few remaining minutes of our, our conversation. Um, first of all, I'd like to just give credit to the Grief Diaries series, which this – I don't think this particular book is a part of that series, but the no. publisher, um, Ali Blue Media, also publishes the Grief Diaries series, which you are a part of a couple of those books. Um, so that needs to be said. They do a wonderful job of creating these anthologies, and every single one of them speaks to an issue that is important to a lot of people out there. So I, I really want to toot their horn a little bit there. What, yeah. um, what final thoughts do you have that you would like listeners to take away today, Karen? Well, I, I think it's important to keep dialogue open with law enforcement. Um, I truly believe that they are a lifeline to getting our case solved. And I know it's difficult at times, um, but uh, if you burn your bridge with law enforcement, um, you know, they have a tendency not to want to work with you. Not that they aren't going to work on the case, but I think they're more open um, to talk to you and give you information um, not, you know, detrimental to the case itself, but to encourage you that, that they're working as hard as they can on a case. Um, I've developed some uh, lifelong um, relationships since, you know, 2006 and 2010 of um, men and women that um, truly uh, worked very hard on trying to get something done with Kathy's case. And so I think keeping the dialogue open, I think finding a purpose, um, and this may take decades, um, to find something, your little niche that helps you to heal um, and, and gives you some kind of purpose trying to live through a life that has been thrown on you and, as people say, is, is this is the new normal and what do I do with that? Um, purpose helps. 
um, I know it's helped me a lot. And, and, and when you do get into the things such as I, you know, writing the books and speaking to law enforcement and university students, um, you do need to know when to say no. Um, because it can be everything I do is on a volunteer basis. And so um, you need to know when you need to rest and regenerate. It's a key to being productive. Um, so, and it's, it's very hard, as you know, um, to say no to someone that would like you to come and speak. Um, um, but if you need that rest at that time, mentally and physically, uh, you need to do that. And I think those are some of the key in, important um, things to look at. Um, and, and I agree if you're going with through, you. If you're going through anything like this right now, um, these books will help you to understand. I didn't know if I was normal as a child uh, or growing mm-hmm. up, the things that I was doing. So these books will help you to understand that what you're feeling is is definitely uh, normal. Absolutely, and and thank you so much for that, Karen. It's just it is amazing to me how much information is contained in these books, and it's all good, helpful information. Um, the book Survivors, uh, the the author Dennis Griffin, and then co-authored by Karen and. 23 other people um, is available at amazon.com. Karen, your website is karenbowden.com. That's K-A-R-E-N-B-E-A-U-D-I-N.com. And listeners, you can buy Karen's books there. Um, You can also go to the grief diaries, Google it. There are, Tons and tons of very, very helpful books. So yeah. I'm going to close this episode with just one thing. Be kind to each other. <laughs>